I'd like, you like to welcome you to M Pavilion 2016. Our first uh, M talk is this evening, um, and I'm very delighted that, of course, part of the tradition of M Pavilion, we get to talk to the architect um, and talk to the founder of um, M Pavilion, Naomi Milgram. Um, it's also, before we begin, um, as a gesture of reconciliation, uh, we obviously acknowledge the original owners of the land, of this land, the Boonarong people of the Coulomb Nation, and pay our respects to their elders past and present. I think the nice thing about the Queen Victoria Gardens is that it has been a meeting place for thousands of years, and the nice thing is that Am Pavilion is part of a sense of continuum, that sort of sense of uh, a gathering space and a place to meet. And it's sort of perhaps given this place um, part, of its, part of its charm and part of its uh, quality. Um, as I mentioned, this is the very first M Talk at M Pavilion um, and the beginning of our extensive program of events designed to complement and respond to B. Joy Jane's beautiful M Pavilion. We thank Studio Mumbai, Kane Construction, Arab Engineering, Track Landscaping, Blue Bottle Lighting, Sam Redston, Louise Nicholson, all for their part in building and making this building possible. As you know, our program, like this building itself, is based very much on a sense of collaboration. In the case of the program, it's with more than 300 designers, artists, uh, and cultural and um, educational institutions. Um, central, to the, central to the program, though, is very much a, a team effort. Jessie French has shaped the program for three years, and this year she's also the Hugh Williamson curator of our design and science program. The rest of the team also include Jennifer Zylenka, uh, Alexandra, Alexandra Zafaru, um, Alan is joined us this year, Alan Weedham, and Daniel Gladys. And also, um, I'd also like to, of course, thank Naomi for her constant vision and leadership. Oh, one more. Um, it's, I think part of that team makes M Pavilion very much a dream project. And so tonight, we're going to meet two peoples whose shared vision created this space. The architect, B. Joy Jane of Studio Mumbai, and the commissioner and founder, Naomi Milgram. Um, and we're also very delighted to welcome architect and presenter of Grand Design Australia, Peter Madison, to lead the discussion. Thank you, Peter, for joining us. one, two. Here we are. Good evening, everybody. How are you? Good, good. It's not raining anymore. What a beautiful night. BJ, what a wonderful night compared to the opening two nights ago. Beautiful. Yeah. Coming out of the door, I was expecting to be hit by the cold and it was wonderful. It was just this incredible weather. So, um, look, tonight uh, we've got a casual conversation happening. We'll go for about half an hour, 40 minutes or so. And um, I thought it'd be nice just to uh, then throw it to the floor if anyone here would like to ask any questions at the end of that so that you can participate. Um, so it's going to be a free-ranging conversation about what I know, my limited knowledge of the whole process, and uh, hopefully we can um, unearth a few gems along the way. 
So um, I guess uh, just to, to start it off, I thought uh, not everyone knows about the M Pavilion and the idea behind it and how it started. So I thought, Naomi, perhaps why the M Pavilion idea? You know, what does it mean to you and, and why are we doing it? Uh, well, essentially the M Pavilion idea was born out of the Serpentine Pavilion. I don't know if people know about it, but the Serpentine Museum in the Kensington Gardens in London has had a pavilion since for the last 15 years, and each year an architect is chosen that has not done any work in London. So, And that grew out of um, Julia Payton Jones' desire to hold a party in the Serpentine to raise money. So Zaha Hadid did actually the first pavilion. And since then, they've gone on to um, have more residents, more education programs, um, and then they're sold at the end of it. And I thought this was a wonderful, wonderful idea to support design and architecture. And asked Julia a few years ago, um, why hadn't anybody else done it anywhere in the world? And she said, well, it's quite difficult, permissions, et cetera, et cetera. So I said, well, I'd like to try it. Would you support that? So she said, yes, she would support it. And then I went to the City of Melbourne, the state government, and I said I had an idea that we could differentiate Melbourne on the basis of design and architecture. We like to think that Melbourne is the cultural capital. It is. The fashion capital, <laughs> the sport capital. Um, so I thought there was a way to make Melbourne the design and architecture capital of Australia, because every good city needs to be differentiated. And the uh, Melbourne City Council were very generous with their permissions. We had to get 37 permits to actually put this building up here, or any building up here. And they were very, very supportive, as was the um, state government. And then we've had great support from people like Martin Carlson at the Hugh Williamson Foundation, who have allowed us and given us the opportunity to make all our programming free. So Did you hear, you all hear that? That four-letter word? <laughs> For a year. So that's really the genesis. And, and, and uh, look, I just wanted to congratulate you both too, right up front, because so much work goes into putting this here. And I think tonight, being the first night in what's going to be a 400-event uh, program over the next four months, with up to 300 people coming in, coming in doing different sorts of um, sp speeches, talks, music, um, dance, collaboration in this space. It's a very magic moment. And uh, let's give these two a bit of a hand. Oh. Thank you. It's a big moment. And, and uh, Bijoy, you know, to, to do something like this, I think this is your first pavilion overseas. That's You've done right. other installations. That's right. That's you know, in a nutshell, and um, we'll dig into this deeper as we go on, but uh, in a nutshell, you know, what does this mean to you? What's the whole idea behind what you've put here in a nutshell? You know, what were you trying to achieve? I think something that was more a very light touch to the land, something that displaced as little as possible the sort of surroundings, uh, but at the same time sort of making a very deep connection to the origin or the original settlers of the land. And, and so uh, I know a little bit more than perhaps everyone here as to how you've done that. Perhaps you just briefly explain, explain how that, that connection works. Right. So what you have, not quite centre, is this gold uh, pipe that goes into the ground. How far? And it goes, I think, if I'm correct, it is about 24 feet, which would be 8 metres uh, deep, yep. you know, in an attempt to touch the water table. 
and that was the first stratification. So if you look down there, you'll yeah. see the water table. Well, you see the water. Uh, is, it, is it being filled up by a hose or is it the water table? I think it's the rain. <laughs> <laughs> but I think for me what's... Yeah, that's yeah. right. For me, what's important is the presence of water, and most of the projects, uh, the starting point, uh, and I guess that's what really makes us, right? We're fundamentally made up of water, so the presence of water for me is extremely important, and that becomes the genesis of the entire project. So uh, the building, what we have traditionally is called a mandapa, which is a sort of Indian name, but what that does is it serves to contain something that is, uh, is uh, you know, sacred. So the structure really is more a container and a shelter uh, so that that enables people to come and visit and, and participate. And, and the other element, of course, you've got the water and you have a black element just at yes. the entrance. Yes, that's actually indigo, but it somehow appears to be black. It's, it's gone black. <laughs> it's indigo then. We'll, we'll go with you on that one. Uh, that's a tazia. It's a structure that's used. Uh, you know, it's 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 celebrated uh, in in the in the Muslim religion where they take these processions out during Ramzan. Uh, but for me, what was interesting about it was that once you strip away the layers, because it's fundamentally, if you sort of abstract it, it's a square and a dome. Uh, so representing the earth and the sky, which is something that's universal, you know, across continents in terms of our relationship to ground, sky, and earth. So that's more a ceremonial gateway that, that uh, is presented as a way to, so as an invitation to come into the, the pavilion. And, and for those that um, haven't been to the previous uh, M pavilions, this is the third, the other two are quite different to the tectonics of this building. And I'm just interested, Naomi, there's um, two and a half million architects in the world, and there's 5,000 odd in Australia. Um, you know, why Mumbai Studio? Um, well, in relation to the first two, um, Sean Godsell did the first Zen Pavilion and um, I wanted the first one to be a great representation of the Australian architectural language. Um, Amanda Levite uh, was working with technology and I wanted the second one to be technologically based and I was very interested in the work that um, B-Joy and Studio Mumbai were doing on the basis that it was very much reverting to the handmade, particularly in the collaborative way that he does everything. I think that really resonated with what we are doing with the M Pavilion. So it was a hard search. How many architects did you have on the list and how many did you cross off? I crossed off 5,000. Oh, are you kidding? <laughs> wow. Was I on the list? No. Peter, oh, damn no, You are at the top. It's oh. okay. Um, yeah, no, it was... Um, I did have in my mind that I wanted to start with Australia and then I did have in my mind that I wanted to look for someone who used technology in a very new way and Amanda's... Um, Technology was actually developed in Brisbane, which has now given this Brisbane company an opportunity to, to further develop that, perhaps for yacht usage. Which, which is a carbon fibre structure, for those yeah. that didn't see it, with a, an acrylic sandwich, uh, with an acrylic sandwich on top, quite high tech. Yeah. And, and what's interesting is that this is such a different iteration of what a, a pavilion can be. And I think that's what's so refreshing this year. Yeah. And, and uh, I, I was also um, fascinated... Uh, 
Bijoy, because your practice is is unlike any other traditional practice. My office is full with computer screens, and everyone goes home with sore eyes at the end of night, and and um, you know they might do a bit of gardening on the weekend. Uh, but your practice is quite different. You know, it's it's got artisans, tradesmen, artists, and you are a sort of a, a workshop more than a, from my observation, more of a workshop that test ideas physically. So it's about the craft, from what I observe, about the craft, less so about uh, some more academic um, uh, ideas. Is that so right? let me put things in perspective. Yeah, you straight, she straightened me out. Uh, this is actually the traditional practice of how architecture that we have come to know, and that's what's enabled us to be where we are. Uh, it comes more from, from the practice of actually making buildings, where there were builders. and So before architects, I mean, you fundamentally had master builders. Uh, that's what made up. And I'm talking about, you know, Europe. If you take Europe in, in association to Australia and the relationship that you share, uh, or for that matter, India. You know, not too long ago, and I, I say about a good hundred years ago, there was there was the concept of an architect did not exist. Uh, it was someone that learned the trade or learned the different trades, and at a certain point in time, had a group of people that were orchestrated uh, to produce or make buildings. Uh, for me, I've, I've enjoyed this process. It was something that evolved. Uh, and uh, I was actually talking to some students yesterday at RMIT uh, describing how I actually got here. Uh, because when I came back from the US and I practiced in London for some time, uh, I remember making these whole series of sets of big, thick dockets of drawings. Uh, and I remember being at the construction site and where I'm building or where I was building, they were unable to read the drawings. You know, they're not trained to read So drawings. there's a disconnect going on. It's not so much the disconnect, but their capacity or their ability to make things, you know, and it's all very gestural and, and, and quite visceral in the way that they respond. Again, just to give you a sort of uh, a sense of time and an idea, you know, and this was something that, that evolved in the practice. But I had carpenters that came from a lineage of 10 generations. Uh, there were stone builders that have been there for 20 generations. Now, I take that with a pinch of salt, but I know for a fact uh, that that's the sense of continuity uh, that sort of exists. So it's in their, in their DNA or in their blood. Again, for me, what I discovered was it was not so much in, you know, the technical knowledge, but more that it was in, embedded in stories and it was embedded in observations that each of them specifically experienced, and how they brought that to the practice. So for me, what's important is this sort of idea of immediacy of making something. You know, you think of something, and it evolves from a sort of illogical idea, actually. There's no logic to why that particular sense is, is to the surface. Uh, and then the, then the ability to respond, whether it's materials and making things. So the practice really comes from that, and it has evolved uh, over a period of time. And it's a unique practice, and, and for those that uh, don't know B. Joy's uh, past, I'll just put it in a nutshell, uh, born in Mumbai, studied in, in the US, um, worked for Richard Meyer, who's um, a very well regarded artist and, and architect, but does big buildings, big formal buildings, generally off-white or white, mm -hmm. but very big, uh, you know, monolithic buildings, monumental buildings. And then so uh, six years there, and then back to Mumbai, back to your roots, and, and exactly. in 1995 set up a practice with a workshop, with workbenches and people sitting on the floor doing their traditional crafts and developing a new style of language, of architectural language, out of that history and tradition, which is so hard to break 
as an architect, you've trained all your life, <coughs> excuse me, to, 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 do, to learn the formalities of practice and then to drop that and go back to your roots, I, I found a very interesting uh, journey for you. For me also, I was drawn to uh, buildings that were outside the modern ideology. Uh, it, and, you know, be them mud structures, you know, <coughs> tiled roofs. Uh, and so I was drawn to these, these structures, uh, beautiful stone carved uh, buildings, uh, and there's an abundance of that. Uh, again, just to give you a sense of perspective, uh, we're a billion two hundred in India, billion billion two hundred million people in India, and more than fifty percent of the built landscape is outside what you and I do. It's not been built by architects, so there's a great sense of uh, a self-reliance because there's an economy, there's an immediacy, and also the technology doesn't exist. So, and for that matter, electricity. Yeah. Uh, so when I set up my practice, it was a small rural place across the harbor from Mumbai. It was It's a good 45, 50 minutes away. You take the boat. Uh, and for the longest time, I mean, uh, and I think remember going, we settled there 20 years ago. And for the first four years, we would not have electricity for eight hours a day. Uh, so then there's, you cannot rely on machine tools and power tools and all of that. So the only thing... Computers that work then. And computers that don't work, yeah. So it was a sort of balancing act of, you know, working with these different conditions that, uh, and it's not so much, it was like f external forces that shaped the outcome of what was then made. And, and Bijoy, um, your practice, uh, as, as unusual as it is, has uh, achieved world recognition. And I'm not going to rattle off all the awards and, and acknowledgement that Studio Mumbai's got over the last, particularly over the last six or seven years. So the few, first few years you're quiet, and then, then you're discovered, and, and uh, Studio Mumbai has incredible uh, recognition around the world, and you travel a lot, you lecture a lot overseas. Right. So you've been pulled out of your little, uh, your, your home village, and, and you've been cast into the world. But I, I, I'm, what you have, which is different to most architects, is a very interesting philosophy in, in design. It's very, um, very hands-on and very uh, uh, emotional uh, approach to what architecture is, which is quite unusual. Used, and I, I'm going to quote you a little bit, if that's okay. Sure. Um, so, so Bijoy talk, talks in terms of a physical truth and, and the nature of people in terms of describing his work. And so the physical truth is, is uh, expressed by things as, such as water, air and light, and the seasons, and the aquifer, which, which you referred to under this building, and also the nature of people, which, which talks about heart, body and mind. And uh, in your uh, lecture on the 25th of July at Melbourne Design School, you really brought up some delightful concepts about the human body and the way that interacts with the architecture we create. Uh, words like posture, refrain, affection, manner and angle of repose. Now they're words you don't normally hear in architecture. So um, I guess two things, question for both of you. Uh, uh, Naomi, I mean, how much is that kind of um, uh, academic and architectural thinking affecting the broader arts? Is there a kind of a, a, a reassessment of where we're going in, in the, uh, and you're well immersed in that, and I'm wondering if there's a kind of a, a trend or a, a movement that's changing regarding that kind of thinking. And for Bijou, for you, you know, how many, how many of those uh, wonderful uh, ideas are embodied in this pavilion? So two questions. I think you forgot the belly button. No, that's coming. Oh, sorry. The belly button's coming. 
Go on, BJ. No, you go ahead. Um, I probably wouldn't comment on movements in architecture. Or arts, I mean, really, more, more the arts generally. Well, in the arts generally, yes, people have reverted back to painting, sculpture, rather than video and photography, certainly in the visual arts. Um, but I think it's um, very much based on the individual's needs. Um, my first brief to an architect was, please don't give me a building, give me an emotion. Um, and that has always been extremely important to me, which is why um, B. Joy's practice, uh, I was so attracted to his practice and the way he worked, because he was feeling an emotive about everything that he was doing. And you can see it all here. And all our discussions have been around how he feels about the building, what it looks like in the landscape, his connections to the landscape, his connections to water, his placing it here. So um, his practice is very much, and I do think that more and more people are thinking about humanity when they're building. Well, hopefully they're thinking more about humanity now. Yes, and and, and, and um, Naomi, you've done a number of buildings uh, personally and, and yeah. for your business. I mean, um, if you were to do another one, would your brief change having been on this journey? No, not at all. It's all about the emotion for me and how it connects with people, how it connects with buildings around it, how it connects with the landscape. No, not at all. And. BJ, is, is, this, is this really a building that embodies some of those principles for you? Yes, so I think you mentioned refrain, and I want to make a correction that it's called, it's restrain. Restrain, thank you. So it's affection, posture, restrain, and manner. Uh, I, I like the quality of the, or the evocative quality of when these words are sort of assembled together, because uh, it suggests a certain sense of, I guess, for me, I'm always in this continuous search of a sense of ease. Now, I don't mean ease in being lazy, but an ease in terms of where you are able to truly be who you are uh, in, 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 in a visceral as well as in a sort of physical sense. Uh, uh, and this idea of angle of repose, which means state of rest, you know, it's the sort of most optimum state of rest. Uh, uh, and I think the endeavor in, in, in you know, in this idea of these these words of this language, uh, is to in some way make a space that remains inert. And I use the word when I use the word inert, it means that you sort of neutralize. Uh, what it means is sort of neutralizing the forces. You know, so be it political ones, be it be it economics, uh, or be for that matter time, uh, and the the building or, or the structure or what is being created or being made uh, by whole collaboration of several people in conversation and in discussion, uh, the final outcome is really uh, an expression of all those forces. So in some sense, when I'm making a building or when I design things, uh, if, I know, if I know the project at, at the onset and even through its development, then that's normally put away. There's always some gap uh, which, can, uh, which I'd like to keep in the project. Uh, not so much about it being unknown. You have a sense for it. Uh, you have a sort of outline or a framework for it. But the, the curiosity of its final physical form. That, that's really hard to do, being a practicing architect, to say, I haven't, I haven't worked it all out yet. It's going to cost X dollars, but leave me sort of 20% to muck around with at the end. And it's hard for a client. Very hard for a client just to leave a bit up your sleeve for, to, to move things when you see them. I mean, that's just it's a great way to be able to practice and, and, and enables you to, to really... Um, uh, I guess fine tune and and uh, uh, you, there's things when things are built, you're not actually quite sure. Even as an architect, 
as an architect, I would propose that you can totally see until it's up in front of you. And um, to be able to fine-tune that's a wonderful you know, thing you've been able to work through there. Can I just say um, there's some seats down the front. If any people are standing at the back there, if you'd like to come and have a seat, there's probably 10 seats at the front here. Would anyone like to sit down? Please come, come and, and utilise them. <clears throat> Um, the other thing I, I thought was interesting, Naomi, listening to some of the um, presentations you've done regarding this building, was that there's, there's elements that we just mentioned um, in this in this building and, and uh, studio Mumbai's work, which you aspire to in a business sense. And, and I, I can quote you, if, if you don't mind. Um, That's a bit scary. <laughs> you're attracted to uh, Studio Mumbai uh, because uh, it had an emotional response to a way of life. And also you said a, a collaboration of collective... Consciousness. Uh, yes. Yeah. And and um, I'm wondering if you can elaborate on that and how it would affect sure. uh, something outside the art world. Well, collective consciousness for me means having partnerships and collaborating. So for us, this project actually doesn't exist. It isn't attached to any great um, institution. It's a free-fall um, placing of something. I think, BJ, what did you say? This is a non-place? Yeah, you did. <laughs> yeah, you did. She's quoting you now. Um, because it is a bit of a non-place. It's bound by yeah, so great... Uh, you did. Yeah. I've got a good memory. Um, it's bound by um, freeways and roads. It's a space which uh, people don't naturally come to. And um, certainly the Melbourne Parks people say to us, it's wonderful to have this space activated. Um so for us, we needed collaborators. We needed a collective consciousness to make this place work. So it obviously starts with the architect and the design, but then there's a whole team of people who work with him. And then we have a fabulous team of collaborators and you know, partners who work with us to actually make this happen. So collective consciousness is really important to me and also in a business sense because we're all only as good as the people that we share with and that we partner with to get a much greater outcome. Exactly, and the collaboration in this building has been enormous, uh, not just in terms of the way it's been assembled, but the way the materials have come together. So, uh, Bijoy, you know, you might like to expand on this, but the materials are from where you come from, but also from here. And the craft that's put this building together is, is I mean, you can talk about the Tarsia and the family that's made that out the front and, and the craft that's gone into these elements and, and also the local know-how. Perhaps you'd like to just talk a bit about that. So the structure was assembled here uh, with a phenomenal group of uh, young, extremely motivated guys from Kane Construction. Uh, they came to Mumbai and spent, I think, four or five days and worked with... Uh, so, at, so the whole journey of the process started back back in, in India in terms of the materiality of the project. Uh, our intention with the, the materials was with the idea of bamboo was that it's fairly rudimentary, it's universal, you have this uh, material pretty much everywhere. It wasn't just that it was cheap. What, not, not, not just because it was affordable. And that too. <laughs> you know, that too. That, that it's also, also, That's also that important is, to yeah, you. Accessible yeah. uh, economically. Uh, it's yeah. a very common material that, that you see in uh, given the nature of the program and, and uh, the fact that it was a temporary pavilion, uh, this is something that I experience, uh, you know, in the in the landscape of 
where I am. Uh, we have special festivals from different parts of the year with different religions. Uh, but not just that, you know, you could also see a, a sort of a movie theater that can be set up in the middle of a street on a special occasion, which is very quickly assembled, bamboo framework, rope tied, and you kind of get a shelter recovering. And, you know, in the next few days, it also then has the ability to dismantle. Not that different from the human body. It's kind of like a skeleton or a scaffolding on which you then assemble or enable other things to be activated. Uh, uh, but I want to go back and just... Uh, talk about this idea of what it means as a non-place, uh, you know, uh, uh, and to correct myself that yes, I did say that, uh, was that in time, uh, what has occurred with this with this particular piece of land or the place that we are now seated here, was there's a displacement that takes place, you know, and these are forces, uh, be it economic growth, colonization, gold rush, I mean, it could be innumerable forces. Uh, and then it sort of, in some way, they become sort of these isolated, it was more like an isolated island, you know, sitting in this, while it was part of the park, it was also in some sense isolated from the park. Uh, and so it was very important, you know, to find that genus Loki to the site. And I remember coming here and I remember Robert narrating these absolutely beautiful stories about uh, the evolution of the land. And that sort of actually triggered, uh, you know, what if one, connects back just physically uh, to that that origin uh, and in some way creates a space you know there's a reason for that space now to be inhabited mm -hmm. uh, and I think that for me is really what's important the materials come from uh, from their forage from the forest uh, what uh, sort of plant uh, I know the bamboo carvey I don't know the English botanical name uh, but it's it's more like a bush or a bramble in the forest uh, grows wild and it's actually used uh, by the indigenous people of the forest because that's how they build their build their enclosures of course they then apply mud and you know dung and lime and all of that to sort of protect themselves from the cold air and all of I was that. expecting to see a bit of cow dung here today but I can't see any because that's the way you know the wattle and daub was the way a lot of indigenous architecture was built here in this country was, and elsewhere. It was considered at a certain point, but because of time constraints and the Melbourne weather being the way it is, uh, you I know think, what he means. Yeah. So, I think it was something that we had to at some point uh, disable because uh, it was it was something that would not just have happened uh, given the time frame uh, of the project. Yeah, and 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 also uh, the use of the. Um, the bluestone, which is yes, um, from yes. Portland, I think. Yes, these are offcuts. Port Ferry, uh, you know, is it? Yeah. I, and, I, and again, for me, what's interesting is this idea of, you know, no material is waste. There's nothing like waste. Uh, it's a question of, you know, how you can bring value to something that essentially, you know, is being thrown away. Uh, and for me, that's important. And it's not so much to show it uh, in its, you know, the possibility uh, that that is embedded in that potential, you know, be it a small piece of wood or just, you know, that's for me, there's an economy of means, there's a frugality of, you know, the way that one uh, acts. And for me, more and more, given, you know, having spent time in, in the US and in Europe and in England and, and, and traveled extensively and then coming back home and seeing how, you know, people with very little can make extremely sensitive, beautiful things. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So my my motivation or inspiration actually comes from that. 
And, and that motivation has been recognised worldwide. I mean, it's not something that's uh, gone unnoticed. And, and, and I just want to talk about the Australian and the Indian ties. You know, um, that simple philosophy you talk about has been acknowledged. Um, well, two nights ago we had the launch. It was too wet to have it here and was taken across to the Fairfax Theatre, uh, right to the foyer area across the road. And, um, you know, I've not seen so much political enthusiasm <laughs> in a launch of a little building. Because we had um, the Indian High Commissioner, who was frothing with excitement, and um, we had uh, Daniel Andrews, who wouldn't get off the stage, and uh, Julia Bishop, uh, Julie Bishop, rather, who uh, was so enthusiastic about going, ongoing support. You know, and I think that uh, what's, it's, it's kind of uh, this building and the, the endeavour here is a strengthened cross-cultural collaboration and a connectedness between, between countries. This little gesture, it's only a small gesture really, and it's ephemeral, it'll be here in a few months, it'll be gone. You no, know. it won't be gone actually. It's going to be moved. gifted to gifted, the city yes. Melbourne, yeah. Sorry, thank you for picking me up on that. Sorry. And I think, uh, where's it going to go, Naomi? Where uh, the city will decide. The city will decide. Um, so, you know, are you surprised about the significance and about the way people embraced it, not just politicians, but, you know, I, I, we had a performer. We had um, Anish. Anish. Anish Pradhan, yeah. who was a... a outstanding musician. A, yeah. Yes, outstanding musician. The best. Sorry? The best tabla player. Fantastic. And he was playing with Yorta Yorta Soprano, uh, Deborah Cheatham, yeah. in the most magic piece of uh, live performance. Everyone was tingling after this the other night. And um, you don't get those sorts of um, emotions and that sort of uh, heightened reality about something um, normally. You know, are you surprised the way, way the publicity that this little building's attached this year, been attached to it, and people's response? I, no, I'm not surprised. I think Melbourne embraces new ideas extremely well. And this is a space that we like to think of as a utopian space where anybody can come, anybody can do anything. I mean, I had this morning when I was here, um, somebody from the, um, who was it, Robert? Tell me. The Gospel Choir, the Melbourne Gospel Choir. And he said, oh, I love this space. We'd love to be able to play in here. And that's the spontaneity that Jesse, who heads up our programming, loves to do. So I think people in Melbourne really love the experimentation. They love the fact that it's new, exciting, and they love the fact that every year we're looking at some new architectural language. I think it's nailed all those things this year. And, and um, it's resonated with me. I mean... Um, uh, I've done a lot of buildings and you t they become quite uh, mathematical after a while. So um, uh, what's, what's I'm interested also in is the kind of sustainability and the, uh, the emotion that goes into something like this. And um, I just wanted to share something with you. Um, about six years ago, uh, I was doing a project. <laughs> I was doing a project in North Melbourne and a wall fell over and there was just bricks st strewn everywhere. And they're being scooped up and put into a bin. And I looked down and I thought, my God, what is that on that brick? And the, the mortar had fallen away and I just saw a little bit of writing. And I thought, what is that writing? And I've cleaned one with a toothbrush um, and I want to actually get this out and talk about this. And um, it's actually, uh, I don't know whether you call it, it's an Olympic brick. Oh, wow. And um, it was made in 1956 which is about our age, well, perhaps more my age, but, um, um, and what, what's interesting about it, and I mean, this city's been built on these bricks, yeah? If you look around all the inner suburbs, all the inner suburbs, that's what we're made of. Um, and it's got a very ergonomic uh, um, dimension, 76, 75 by 
110 by 265, um, but it's comfortable to lift, and it's uh, a, an object that's been developed around the world as, as a, a basic uh, element of building, of shelter. And on the face of it, there's um, 60 years of grime, North Melbourne grime, that's on the face of the brick, face west for 60 years, and it's actually burnt off. Um, and there's a, there's a project that, uh, that uh, BJOU did uh, with the 50 Peacock project, which was, um, uh, I thought, had great uh, uh, synergies with, with the, 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 this brick eye that I've cleaned. Um, and and um, that is the project that uh, BJOU showed us at um, Melbourne Design School on the 25th, 25th of July. It was, a, it was a building that was in a valley and the, uh, it was, uh, all the building was taken out of the ground. The, the building was built out of the ground and no trucks were allowed to go in and out of this site because of the peacocks. They had great, um, uh, great value. And, um, and I thought, what a lovely idea. There's no uh, energy transported. There's no loss of energy. Everything, they've utilised what's available on site. So the idea is, is that, this is for you incidentally, you've got to take that home. Um, uh, the idea is, uh, you know, embodied, en embodied energy. Yeah, give me a clap. <laughs> You've got to put it in your suitcase. But the idea is, you know, uh, we talk about embodied energy and what it, the, the energy it takes to make an object, that is the power and transport and fuel, and that's the embodied energy that uh, I know of. But, Bijou, you talk about an emotional energy, uh, an emotional uh, uh, embodied energy in, in, th in elements that go into buildings. And I thought that was why I was, why I was affected by that one brick. It was because of that emotional energy that went into someone having the idea to make that more than the brick. Right. I think when we say emotional energy, my, uh, I'm referring to more the idea of the intention and the action. So there's an intent and then there's an act. Uh, and it's the coming together of those two phenomena within oneself that in some, in some way has the capacity to enter into something, you know. It's not that different and I kind of use this reference a lot, uh, this idea of the hand uh, and pretty much all of us that have come into being in, 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 on this planet, uh, the first act or the first communication that we had was the hand. That's what brought us into the world. and and. For me, what's important is the transfer. There's a communication transfer that's taking place, uh, and I do believe that you know, buildings, you know, language, like like language, uh, architecture, literature, mathematics, they they all contain this idea of symbols. You know, they're symbols that that in time get transferred, generations, civilizations, and so for me, it's very important that that. This idea of embodied energy is a means of communication uh, of a certain value or an ethical value or an ethos. And I'd encourage you all to go online, have a look at some of uh, Studio Mumbai's work, because it has a, a lovely, um, humble simplicity about the building, and it's stripped back to its, uh, its, its primal elements. And uh, you know, I think that's what uh, distinguishes the work. Um, so uh, good luck with the brick. <laughs> You've got to take it home. He works with bricks too. <laughs> oh, and incidentally, you've ex exhibited a couple of times at the Venice, um, yeah. Venice Biennale, yeah. uh, and and the last installation was a whole lot of bricks yeah, assembled in a, in, a, in a quite an interesting dome shape. That's right. That's so um, maybe that'll find its way into something. And and also, um, I'm, I'm I'm really thrilled to announce, and, and th those that don't know, that uh, um, Naomi's now taking on the reins of being the commissioner for the Australian Biennale. In, in Venice, uh, so well done. Thanks. Yeah.
Uh, it's the visual arts. Yeah, visual arts. Yeah. So, so um, just if you're not busy enough, you've taken that on. So well done. Yeah, no, great privilege. Um, look, we've been talking, oh, goodness, for 45 minutes. Um, I, I just quickly a couple of... I'd like to see if anyone would like to uh, ask any questions before we wrap up. Would anyone like to ask either Naomi or, or Bijoy any, any, anything about the pavilion or their past or what they're doing tonight? <laughs> There's a woman... Could you speak up, please, so we can all hear you? I'll just repeat that so everyone can, can uh, hear. Uh, how much did Studio Mumbai know about this site uh, a bit when you were coming to a, a decision about the design? Uh, so at the onset, no, not very much uh, at the beginning. But again, just in how a project is developed, uh, there's something that is already you know, ongoing in one's mind's eye uh, about certain things that you're curious about or you know, have some thoughts about. Uh, and for me, what was important is actually observing that moment where the site has a way of communication. There is something. Uh, and that being also meeting with Naomi, talking to her, walking here. I remember the foundations, because uh, this was for the M Pavilion mm -hmm. of last year, of 2015, mm -hmm. was, was going on at that time. Uh, so you start seeing these kind of marks, you know. Uh, and so for me, uh, to be specific to the question is, it's something that... Uh, you become familiar with. It's like when you meet someone, right? You don't. It's the same way as you meet someone. You don't know everything, and uh, but there's a sense, there's a there's a communication that occurs, and I think it's the sort of back and forth, returning back, and that's what empowers, uh, or that's what facilitates a sort of inner, uh, a sort of an in-depth view to the place. So it's not something that happens immediately. It's something that actually is what is accumulated over a period of time. And of course, the response then comes is a collective response to all of these conditions that one uh, accommodates for the project. But I think I think um, your questions are leading to, to the idea that this is Birurang Ma. It's thirty mm -hmm. to forty thousand years of habitation on mm -hmm. this site, and and uh, the response here I think is. Um, uh, somehow connected to that history. I think that's kind of what you might be getting at. And uh, the, the River of Mists, you know, and, it, and it's kind of, uh, this building has a wonderful intangible quality to it that might be referring to that. Um, I might be putting words in your, your, in your, in your but mouth. Certainly but certainly Deborah Cheatham feels exactly the same way and the song that um, she actually sang at the opening is about this place and the connection that she feels that Bee Joy has actually placed here, particularly with the water, the sky and the earth. Um, so she feels very strongly as a Yorta Yorta woman that that's actually what he's achieved. Hmm. Is there any other questions? This gentleman at the front. So, so the question was, uh, can we see this uh, this architectural type, which is handcrafted, transferring to um, larger projects in an urban environment like we have here in Melbourne? Can, you, can it be can, can it be seen see as being yeah. transferred? Yes, it can, is it transferable? That's the intention, uh, to be honest with you, because I think 
we tend to get caught in the stream and the flow of the river and that I think the idea of this project is also some kind of resistance uh, but it also is intended to sort of reclaim thoughts and ideas and and ways of, 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 of protection and shelter that have existed on, on, on this on this earth and have existed in this continent. Uh, so in some way it's also, you know, it's like this idea of time capsule, you know, how, how will it generate, what the future would be, you know, that's all up, it's all speculative. But the idea is to at least position and place something of this nature uh, with the idea that it can then be picked up, you know. Uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to sort of give you a small anecdote, uh, and I just discovered this in Japan. Uh, you know, when I started the studio and the practice, it was not intended to be the way that I'm practicing right now. Uh, but to find 10 years later that a studio in Japan had sort of connected back to its traditions. He comes from a family who's a master carpenter. You know, his father's about 80 now. He's an architect. And he's got a group of, you know, 14 or 15 people in between 20 and 30 who've gone back to building the way they were building 400 years ago. Now, again, it's not nostalgic that, you know, or romantic. Uh, but more that idea of that embodied energy, the value, the ethics that are actually brought into the project. So it's really more a motivation that comes from that. And if you look at some of the, uh, the buildings that are occurring in the city that are more sensitively done today, there's a lot more craft and collaboration with artists and, and artisans, uh, and they're the ones that are, that are um, being recognised, I think. Um, I think we'll call that a, a, a day. Now, I, I wanted to... Um, congratulate these two again for doing this wonderful pavilion. Just to reiterate, this is the first event of 400 events that are going to occur in this building. And um, this has taken an enormous amount of planning, effort and, and investment. And I just want to, rather than just clap these two off, I want to give a, a bit of a cheer. So if you're joining me, hip hip. Oh Come on. Goodness. Hip hip. Hip hip. Well done. Thank you so Thank much. You. Thank, Thank you. Thank you, Peter.